Hey, No Man's Land listeners. It's me, Audrey Gelman, CEO and co-founder of The Wing. If you've been listening to our podcast since the beginning, you know I love the Emmy Award-winning series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I'm so excited the show is finally back. Midge Maisel is a tough woman who refuses to be put in a box, and I love seeing characters like that on TV. Thanks to Amazon Prime Video for their support, and welcome to Episode 4 of No Man's Land. After a year of more than friendship, I finally faced the fact that this was desire and sex and lust and uh, love <laughs> and all those things, <laughs> just like the straight people feel. Kayla Husen grew up in Ohio in the 1940s, and despite her joyous tone, it wasn't the best time or place to come out. She's retelling the story in 1989, alongside her partner of 46 years, Barbara Giddings, during an interview in their living room with Eric Marcus, the host of the podcast, Making Gay History. I have to tell you, I just, I had a breakdown over it. I literally had to go to bed and lie down, and I was totally weak, and it was like a hammer was pounding my head. So I have always hated doctors, so I said, well, all right, I'll have a Christian science practitioner come and pray over this. (laughs) (laughs) Kay let the practitioner come and try to, quote, pray the gay away, but spiritual intervention didn't change her sexual orientation. And so Kay, who was just 18 years old, faced a choice, submit to the church as someone who needed to be healed or decide she didn't need healing. And I just decided within myself that I was right and the world was wrong and that there couldn't be anything wrong with this kind of love. And I got well. (laughs) I mean, I I had a quick healing. (laughs) Barbara, who's remembered as the mother of the gay rights movement, passed away in 2007 at the age of 74. We were doing this very revolutionary picketing in the 1960s, before Stonewall ever happened. Kay, who's 88, lives in a nursing home in Pennsylvania. We spent the afternoon together last summer. There's so many talkers in every movement. They talk, talk, talk. She did, did, did. If she's the mother, what are you? (laughs) No idea. I'm the troublemaker. Welcome to No Man's Land, a podcast about women who are too bad for your textbooks. I'm your host, Alexis Coe, the in-house historian for The Wing, a network of work and community spaces for women. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to a woman who broke the rules, who history forgot about, ignored, or got totally wrong. I absolutely love hearing Kayla Husin and Barbara Giddings at home in 1989. Kay, I need some coffee. I'm making right now. And once the coffee was ready, Kay told a story about a book that blew her mind. It was called Voyage from Lesbos, written by Robert C. Robertiello, a psychiatrist who had, in his own retelling, so successfully treated Connie, she renounced her lesbianism. It became a cult classic, but not because of the doctor's supposed success. Some readers found it hilarious, some thought it was super hot, and others, like Kay, read it like an advertisement. Come to New York and find your people. 
So I made an appointment with him in New York, and I drove to New York to see him. And then I asked him a couple of questions about what makes people gay and blah, blah, and which I wasn't really interested in. And I came to the real question, <laughs> how do I meet others? <laughs> so he said, oh, he said, if that's what you want, that's easy. And he <laughs> reached over on his desk, and he pulled up this old copy of the ladder, like one of those rare <laughs> copies of the old days when they only printed 100 or something. And he gave it to me, and he said, well, here, here's this organization, Daughters of Belitis. They have an office here in New York and everything. Well, I almost fell off the chair. I wrote him my check for $20 an hour, which is what it was then. Having spent 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> Kay wrote a letter to the Daughters of Belitis, the first lesbian civil rights group in America. The very same group who published the copy of the latter, the psychiatrist gave Kay. And that letter went straight to Barbara, who was the chapter president. For the first time, I found myself in a living room in a normal social setting with 12 other lesbians, and it was a marvelous experience. These women were used to going to clandestine spaces, looking for signals from other women, so casually hanging out at someone's house with a community that, even at 12 people, presented a sizable dating pool was life-changing. And Kay, the newcomer from Boston, made quite an impression on the group. She told Barbara to go after me. I was a cute little package. (laughs) (laughs) Really ticked me off. Oh, yes. It's been a standing joke with us ever since. (laughs) Cute little package. And from that day on, they were together. And like anyone who's in love, they wanted to tell everyone they knew and hold hands in the park to say hello with a kiss when they met up at a restaurant to flirt across the table, to be a normal couple. But they couldn't do any of that. It was too risky. We were considered sick. So the sickness label infected everything that we said and did and made it very difficult for us to have any credibility for anything we said for ourselves. Homosexuals were sinners uh, everywhere. We were criminals because there were sodomy laws in every state in in the mid-20th century. That's the historian Lillian Faderman describing how pervasive discrimination was. To the government, we were subversives. We couldn't uh, keep government positions because there was this idea that if you were homosexual, it was such a terrible thing to be that you would gladly give away uh, state secrets if you were threatened with blackmail. And of course, to the psychiatric profession, we were all crazies because in 1952, the first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders was published and homosexuality was included there as a mental disorder. According to psychiatrists, homosexuality was a form of sexual deviance, and those who displayed it were abnormal. But this idea existed long before it was codified in the DSM. We're telling a story about women who lived a hundred years apart, but their lives are connected by this one devastating allegation. The story will end in the 1980s, but it begins in the 1890s. When Alice Mitchell was 19, she murdered her same-sex fiancé, 
Frederica Ward in Memphis, Tennessee. And in 1892, the nation was obsessed with the case. Newspapers delivered breathless coverage, but the word lesbian was still decades into the future. And the way reporters describe the love between two women, the detail they use, is illuminating. Alice and Frederica had a, quote, unnatural passion, a perverted affection. The murder was premeditated and there were witnesses, but the crime didn't matter. It was the motivation. Alice said she killed Frederica because she loved her and she wanted to marry her. So Alice wasn't tried for murder. She was tried for insanity, promptly found guilty, and put in an asylum. The case became the subject of my first book, Alice and Frida Forever, and a year after it came out, I exchanged emails with a descendant of Alice's named Sonda Smith, who I went to go see when I was recently in Memphis. Can I see a photo of your grandfather, please? He certainly may. He was Alice's Mitchell's cousin. He was six years old at the time of the tragedy. His father was a partner of Alice's father, their whole business dissolved trying to protect Alice. So it radically changed his life. An expert witness in the case, Dr. Frank Sim, wrote the very first medical report about it. He incorporated the sensational newspaper coverage as fact, as well as his unfounded theories that Alice was left-handed, had asymmetrical features, and played softball. And from there, the belief that same-sex love was perverse and led to insanity that lesbians were ill and needed treatment, made its way around the world. The fact that it can be traced back to Alice was pretty overwhelming for Sonda to hear. She didn't even find out about the case until she was in college, and she only figured out the details when she happened upon Alice and Frida Forever in a bookstore. I had no idea that it was actually this case that kind of codified it. And I hate that, to be honest. And it kind of horrifies me that anything connected to our family would have such repercussions, such bad repercussions, on so many people down the years. When I was researching the book, I read Lillian Faderman's Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, in which she writes about the legacy of Alice's case— focusing on how sexologists like Havelock Ellis ran with it. What aggravates me particularly about Havelock Ellis's account is when he introduces Alice Mitchell, he calls her a typical invert. And uh, he follows that with two or three other stories of lesbian murders. In his terms, a typical lesbian thing to do, violence between women lovers. And then he presents Alice Mitchell as an illustration. He starts with her. Alice was used to link same-sex love with instability, which was convenient. If homosexuality was a disorder, then it justified widespread prejudice, discrimination, harassment, and violence. Homosexuals sometimes were given uh, electroshock treatments. Uh, there were cases of prefrontal lobotomies on homosexuals. Have you had a transorbital lobotomy on August 1st? You know what day it is today? August 9th. That's right. Why did you have that operation, do you know? I think it was something to do with my uh, sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. 
I watched videos of this, of people being strapped to beds while their bodies were subjected to the very latest theories. Women were given hysterectomies. Men were castrated. Lesbians were given estrogen shots to make up for a perceived lack of femininity. Of course, none of it worked. Science, with all its credibility, told people homosexuals are not normal, they're not a part of mainstream society, but can be after intervention and treatment. A whole industry developed in the mid-20th century of these psychoanalysts who promised homosexuals who were unhappy, and of course, what homosexual wouldn't be unhappy with the way society was. Lillian pointed me in the direction of a 1950s study by the late psychologist Dr. Evelyn Hooker. The audio you're about to hear is once again from the podcast Making Gay History. Let me tell you how, how it all began. Dr. Hooker taught extension classes for the UCLA psychology department because, as they told her, they already had a few women professors, and that was quite enough. But Dr. Hooker was actually quite happy there. She found a great student in one of her night classes, a man by the name of Sam Fromm. It became clear almost immediately that he was the outstanding person in the class. Everybody he knew and said, you've got to meet this woman. She is another Eleanor Roosevelt. When Sam called her, quote, another Eleanor Roosevelt, Dr. Hooker thought that he meant that she was a brilliant progressive, the kind of woman who would be praised for her achievements. But it was the 1940s. And Sam was speaking in code. Many of us in the gang I ran with might have said very butchy, <laughs> with a deep voice. Dr. Hooker was almost six feet tall. According to Lillian, she had a chiseled face, wore tailored suits, and everyone's gaydar was flashing. So I think that many of us might have suspected she was a lesbian, even though she called herself hopelessly heterosexual. Dr. Hooker was married twice, to men and found that being straight was actually an asset to her research. I would have to be more heterosexual than God. <laughs> it was the only way, at the time, that her professional interest in homosexuality would be taken seriously. And that's exactly what Sam wanted her to do, which is why he introduced her to his community, his partner, his lesbian friends. He took her to big gay parties in Silver Lake, and it worked. Sammy turned to me and said, now, we have let you see us as we are. Sam told her, it's your scientific duty to study our, quote, condition, which resonated with Dr. Hooker because, as far as she could see, they didn't have a condition. They were at odds with everything she'd studied and that she, in turn, taught her students. I probably taught the usual junk. It is psychopathological. It is a criminal offense. What else is it? And it's a sin. <laughs> the only way Dr. Hooker could prove that it wasn't any of those things was to start at the very beginning and conduct a scientific experiment, just as she would for any alleged psychological condition. There was excitement about doing something that you felt was going to be groundbreaking, whatever happened, because it would have been the first time anybody ever looked at this behavior and said, now, we'll use scientific tests to determine, is this pathological or not? Her test group included 30 homosexual men who were a 5 or a 6 on the Kinsey scale, meaning exclusively or mostly homosexual, and 30 heterosexual men who were a 0 or 1 at most. 
she administered three tests. First, the Rorschach inkblot test. During the second test, the thematic apperception test, subjects were shown images and asked to make up stories about them. And finally, the make-a-picture story test, where subjects again made up stories, this time with cutout figures in specific settings. She then had experts in each field try to distinguish between the pairs of heterosexuals and homosexuals. At that time, in 54, 55, every clinical psychologist worth his salt would tell you that if he gave those projective techniques, that he could tell whether a person was gay or not. No such thing. They could identify no better than if you flipped a coin. And most of the time they were wrong in their identification. These experts were not thrilled about having to take what would surely be, despite the very clear outcome, a controversial stance. Bruno Klopfer, who was the worldwide expert on the Rorschach test, said, what are you trying to do, skin us alive here? He was, yes, he was astonished. He just, he could not believe that you couldn't identify, if you looked at these pairs, who was the homosexual and who was the heterosexual. Dr. Klopfer actually asked for a second go at the Rorschachs, and again, he struck out. And so they finally had to admit that homosexuality did not show up in these tests that that psychiatrists and psychologists use to identify neurosis and psychosis. So what is it that these medical professionals thought they were diagnosing? At the 1956 annual meeting of the American Psychological Association in Chicago, Dr. Hooker made a bold announcement. None of the tests psychiatrists relied on to tell them who was mentally sick and who was mentally well could show them who was a homosexual and who was a heterosexual. And of course, there were people, some not too many, but there were some people who were saying, well, that, of course, that can't be right. And they set off to try to prove that I was crazy. Treating and curing homosexuals was big business to certain mental health professionals, and they weren't about to let some woman wreck their livelihood. It really sort of put a hole in any attempt to say that homosexuals are pathological, that they have a mental disorder, and it really called into question the whole idea of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis to change a homosexual to a heterosexual. And of course, the American Psychiatric Association immediately took homosexuality out of the DSM. Just kidding. (laughs) They did not do that. And now, a word from our presenting sponsor, SAP, where we'll hear from a series of women who inspire us with their fearlessness and creativity. Hi, I'm Alicia Tillman, Chief Marketing Officer at SAP, where we provide companies the technology they need to run at their best and help the world become a better place. When Annie Estogic was in middle school, she was already getting nationwide recognition for her inventions. Now, at 16 years old, Annie's best-known invention is a new type of microwave design. It was a spaghetti dish with my dad, and uh, we put it in the microwave, 
And so it's just unevenly cooked, and it's completely inedible. I mean, we're, like, mushing this up, and there it was a complete disaster. Annie's research found that energy gravitates toward the outside corners of the microwave, which is why food often ends up scalding hot on the outside and cold on the inside. She invented a new design that reflects energy away from the corners and toward the center of the microwave. People assume, okay, a microwave inner cavity is always rectangular. Just because something already has been like that for years doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best way it should be or the best way that you can do it. Annie is 16 now. She was named in Forbes' 30 Under 30. She has several patents pending, and she's met former President Obama at the White House twice. That's a lot to accomplish before you're even a senior in high school. SAP helps companies of all sizes and industries run better and is committed to gender equality. Please visit sap.com forward slash women forward to learn more. Homosexuality, according to the 1950s DSM, was still deviant. But not everyone within the American Psychiatric Association dismissed Dr. Hooker's findings. For the rest of her life, people thanked her. There was this really touching moment during the interview in which she's so moved by the retelling of those memories that she's overcome by emotion and says, excuse me while I cry. If I went to a gathering of some kind, gay gathering of some kind, I was sure to have at least one person come up to me and say, I've wanted to meet you because I wanted to tell you that what you saved me from. I'm thinking of a, of a woman, a young woman, who came up to me in a meeting and said um, that her parents put, when they discovered that she was a lesbian, her parents put her in a psychiatric hospital and that the standard procedure in the hospital was electroshock. But that her psychiatrist was familiar with my work and he was able to keep them from giving it to her. So I feel that that's my monument. The diagnosis needed to change. That was the first step. But it couldn't be left up to doctors alone. And that's where Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen come in, the mother of the gay rights movement and her troublemaker. This was what we were living for. Now, people think that's drudge work, but it's not. It's fun. We had so much fun in the old days. It began with public demonstrations, which was a radical act at a time when the daughters of Belitis pushed lesbians towards the mainstream. Wear skirts, behave like ladies, normalize lesbians. Protests were shocking to them. And it was shocking to everyone, really, because they'd never seen anyone, let alone a group of women, so publicly and boldly proclaiming themselves, literally on the signs they were carrying, to be homosexuals. This is from onlookers at several of the demonstrations. Kay went to go talk to them. She wrote down their responses and published them in a pamphlet. Businessman, that's an impressive-looking picket line. Girl with beehive hairdo. Gee, they look human. Dowager, 
How dare they show their faces? Two homosexual men. We feel ashamed of ourselves. They're doing this for us. They protested across the country, but their street-based tactics were still highly contentious within their community. Frankly, most people, even gay people, thought our movement was going nowhere. It was at the bottom of the barrel socially, and uh, we probably would never prevail in our cause. But nonetheless, a few of us diehards believed in it. They also believed that they'd never have full citizenship if the American Psychiatric Association continued to label homosexuals as sick. It infected all other issues. It seemed to be very good common sense. We don't wait around for the experts to declare us normal. And so they didn't. Barbara and Frank Kameny, an astronomer who had been dismissed from his job at the U.S. Army Map Service for a sexual orientation, were given a booth at the APA conference, which they called Gay, Proud, and Healthy. The homosexual community speaks. But the real event was the panel they spoke on, called Psychiatry, Friend or Foe to Homosexuals. The panel included two heterosexual psychiatrists, which struck Kay as a missed opportunity. Kay said, this was all Kay's doing, she said, well, look, um, oh, yes, there were to be a couple of psychiatrists. I think Judd Marmer was one of them. And she said, look, you have psychiatrists who are not gay on the panel, and you have gays who are not psychiatrists on the panel. But what you're lacking on the panel is gay psychiatrists. And she said, why don't we try to get a gay psychiatrist. Barbara went straight to the Gay PA, an underground group of gay psychiatrists who were more of a support group than an activist group. But the Gay PA was afraid that they'd lose referrals at best and their licenses at worst, so they declined. They feared uh, a damage to their careers. Mm-hmm. But finally, I talked with this one man who said, well, I will do it, provided... I am allowed to wear a wig and a mask and use a distort microphone. And that's what he did. At six foot four and 300 pounds, Dr. John Fryer, a psychiatrist in Philadelphia, wasn't an easy figure to disguise. But his partner, who happened to be a drama major back in college, was pretty eager to try. And of course, he couldn't use his real name either. On that day, he would answer to Dr. H. Anonymous. Oh, this is Dr. Anonymous at the American Psychiatric Association, 1973. I took that picture. That's Kay's picture, yes, that's Kay's photo. He had a suit that was too big for him, and he was already a big man. He had this awful mask on. I think it was, was that a Richard Nixon mask? It was terrible, it was grotesque. And I thought, oh, I'm sorry I ever proposed this. Dr. H. Anonymous told a truly shocked audience that there were more than 100 homosexual psychiatrists at that convention alone, and they were forced to pass as straight, and rallied his colleagues not only to support them, but their patients. Make your homosexual patients know they're all right, he said, and laid blame on the APA. And at the end, he received a standing ovation. I think what really happened is that they knew they were wrong. In their hearts, they knew that this was not right and not fair, and that they sooner or later they would have to abandon the old position on homosexuality. Which they did. 
By the 1980s, homosexuality was completely stricken from the DSM. We had a wonderful headline in one of the Philadelphia papers, 20 million homosexuals gain instant cure. <laughs> we were cured overnight by a stroke of the pen. Just as originally, we'd been made sick by probably a stroke of the pen. From that point on, treating homosexuality as a disease was unethical in the field of psychiatry. Soon after, laws banning so-called conversion therapy were passed in nine states and the District of Columbia. But as recently as 2018, UCLA released a study showing that many Americans still believe that people who identify as LGBTQ are abnormal and should receive some kind of intervention. It was easy for people to say, oh, those people are sick. And now they had to come up with other reasons. So now they're coming out with more basic reasons. I don't like you. I don't like the way you live. I think you're immoral. I think you're rotten. Well, all of that is more honest than this nonsense about you're sick. And that's why, in some states, gay couples are barred from adopting children. Why pharmacists deny hormone prescriptions to trans patients. Why they're harassed in the streets. But if we've learned anything from Dr. Evelyn Hooker, Kayla Husen, and Barbara Gettings, and so many others, they'll fight. They'll be relentless and resourceful, and they'll be bursting with love the entire time. And that's why eventually, they'll always win. Sure, there are setbacks, but there's a satisfaction in, in seeing the accomplishment and seeing the progress forward. For every setback, we've made three major uh, strides forward. You've got to realize you're talking to two fanatics here. <laughs> That's us in the gay movement, you know what I mean? <laughs> Little old ladies in tennis shoes, living on a shoestring, totally fanatics, well, caught up in a cause. You're caught up in it, and, and it, there, there's tremendous uh, reward. No Man's Land is a co-production of The Wing and Pineapple Street Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alexis Coe. Our executive producers are Audrey Gelman, Deidre Dyer, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. No Man's Land is produced by Anne Hepperman and edited by Diane Hodson. Cameron Mesereau composed the music, and our band Glasser wrote the theme with additional music from the band Lola Tone. Special thanks to Eric Marcus and Sarah Burningham from the Making Gay History podcast for providing us with the incredible archival audio of Barbara Giddings, Kayla Husen, and Dr. Evelyn Hooker. We could not have done this episode without them. To hear more archival interviews with LGBTQ trailblazers, check out Making Gay History. Go and subscribe now. You'll find them at all the usual places you get your podcasts and at makinggayhistory.com. We had help from Cynthia Pimentel, Leela Day, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Dina Kleiner, Melanie Altarescu, Laya Garcia, and Diva Perdue. To learn more, read The Gay Revolution by Lillian Faderman, The Gay Crusaders by Kayla Husen, and Alison Frieda Forever by me, Alexis Co. If you're interested in a women's focused workspace and place to hang out in New York, LA, DC, San Francisco, Chicago, or London, consider The Wing. Apply for membership at the-wing.com. Next week, we look at the life, work, and death of Cuban-American artist Ana Mendieta. Thanks for listening.